for today's New Testament lesson from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. Rid yourselves, therefore, of all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture. See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner and a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, Diane, thank you so much for reading our lesson in grace and peace to all of you in the name of Christ. It is uh, so good to be in worship with you on this last Sunday in the month of October. It's hard to believe that we're here. Uh, we have, I believe, if I'm counting right, eight Sundays left in 2022, which is hard to believe. Uh, I do want to remind you that, that next Sunday, as Jim mentioned, is All Saints Day, and it's one of the most special days of worship in the year. We have 50 names of those of our family who have preceded us to the Father's house, and we'll gather together and call those names and ring the bell. We have their pictures, and we'll have roses for the family, each family, to receive a rose. And we hope that you'll be here for this sacred and holy service as we celebrate the cloud of witnesses who've gone before us and the communion uh, of the saints. Jim, thank you for leading us. Thank you for your prayer. Uh, Ryan, all of our musicians, we're grateful to all of you and for the joy to be in worship. And I have to tell you that I'm very, very excited to leave for a few moments the Old Testament. Uh, we have been in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus for 11 weeks, almost three months, and it was a marvelous study. I hope you think so too. But today we're moving to the New Testament in this new series that we're choosing to call uh, we are, we are. And so over the next four weeks, we are asking you to be faithful with not only your commitment card in dedicating a tithe for 2023, a specific intentional gift for the year as we anticipate our ministry together, but also I think it's really important to fill out uh, the heart card. I call it a heart card and it's a postcard. On the back of it, it says, I have a heart for blank. And we hope that you will fill that out. We are, we are mining the body of Christ because we want to know how God has hardwired you 
in ways for witness and ministry. I have a slide. We, we did this with our uh, staff recently, and you can see what, what they put in there. Each of them put one word in there. And if you see the larger words, it's because those were repetitive. So if you see people, children, and worship, that had several people who were writing that down. And we're gonna do the same thing with you. Of course, there was one person on our staff that put, I have a heart for Korean barbecue. There's always a wise guy. There's always a wise guy. And I'm still trying to find out who said that. Uh, whoever said that, you're fired. Um, so anyway, this is not a moment to complain or anything like that. This is about you and how God has hardwired you. If you do have a complaint, stop by the office on Monday. That's my day off. So just remember, um, remember that. The idea for this series came to me from an unusual source. Uh, it came from George Barna. Some of you know that name, George Barna, is the founder of a market research firm that specializes in studying the religious beliefs and behavior of Americans and the intersection of faith and culture. Mr. Barna recently completed a study and published it. It's called The Giving Landscape. You can Google some of this information if you care to do that. What he did was, he surveyed adults in the United States who said that they had donated money recently to charitable organizations, including churches and house, uh, houses of worship in the past year. 60% of U.S. adults and 90% of Christians fall into this category of saying that we give of ourselves to God and to the ministry. What's interesting to me is when it comes to what leads people to give or inspires people to give, the nature of the request matters. And so here's what Mr. Barna discovered. 6% of the people said they gave because of a particular ministry. 7% because of the way they were asked. 8% because of the person who asked. 11% because of the reason for the ask. And it was 60% in all folks, but in Christians, in practicing Christians, 77% said we give because it's who we are. That's really interesting. In other words, what they're saying is it's part of my identity. It's part of my spiritual makeup. It's, it's part of my DNA. Almost 80% said that. We give because it's who we are. And so when I read that report, I have to tell you, it inspired me to dig a little bit deeper about identity. Who are we as offspring of God? Who are we, those of us who are made in the image of God, and that's all of us? Who are we as followers of Christ? Not long ago, I attended a board meeting at Emory University. I'm privileged to be on the board of advisors at the seminary, of which I'm an alum, which is Candler School of Theology on the campus of Emory University. During our meeting, and I think this was three weeks ago, I met our new VP, Provost, who is from India. His name is Dr. Ravi Belamkanda. I can understand parts of what he says because he's a bioengineer and a neuroscientist. He was dean at Duke and Georgia Tech before coming to Emory. 
And he told us that day, he said, I'm bringing a new initiative to the school around the issue of identity. He said, and I quote, in the past, whenever I ask students who they are, they tend to talk about what they're going to do professionally. In other words, I'm gonna be a lawyer. When you say, who are you? I'm gonna be a, a teacher, a pastor, a CPA, a financial person, a nurse, a psychologist, all of that. But, said Dr. Ravi, I'd like to shift the question from what we do to who we are. I wanna shift the question from task to purpose, from function to identity. And so I raise the question today, who, who are we as followers, as disciples of Jesus? If you wanna ruin a good party where you don't know many people, when you meet someone new, instead of saying, what do you do, say, who are you? <laughs> You'll find yourself very much alone if you ask that question. But who are we as disciples of Jesus? Well, I think the scripture helps, especially the red letters. You are salt, the salt of the earth. You are light, the light of the world. You are the branches, Jesus said, and I am the vine. You are yeast, you are leaven in the dough. You are good seed in the ground. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And isn't it interesting in the text that Diane read for us that the scripture says that you are royalty. That's interesting. Listen to the verse again, verse nine, the first half of verse nine, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. I was in a dentist office recently and I was filling out the paperwork and after the name, address, gender, and marital status came the question of race. Are you white, black, Hispanic? What are you? And I thought about it, I didn't do it, but I thought about writing in that space, royalty. <laughs> now I thought better about it because I knew they'd overcharge me if I wrote that. <laughs> but I thought, I, I'm, I'm chosen, that's my race. That's our race. It's an interesting thought because our core identity is not in what people say. It's not primarily in our ethnicity. It is secondarily, but it's not that. It's not primarily in our gender, though that's part of it. It's not in our nationality or our socioeconomics or even our political perspective. Your identity is in that baptismal bowl. My identity is in my confession of faith. Our identity is in our faith in Christ. That's our tribe. And so I think that we are first and foremost sons and daughters of the Most High God. Our son and daughter-in-law were visiting last weekend. Uh, he came to the 945 service. He's a pastor at 32 years of age at First Methodist Noonan, United Methodist Church. They've never had a senior pastor under 40. Andrew is 32. That constitutes a prayer concern. <laughs> he and Adair came to 945. They sat on the back row where most preachers really want to sit when they're having a day free. And on late Friday afternoon, I took him to my favorite spot. I took him to Radnor. Some of you have heard of Radnor. And we took a walk up the ridge and we were talking about ministry. It's a wonderful thing to have that kind of relationship with your son, you know. 
two generations in the same capacity, the same work. And I said, Andrew, I've got a question for you. I said, what, what, is, what do you think that we, what questions should we in the church be asking in 2022? And he thought about it for a minute. He didn't answer right off, but he said to me, Dad, I think the question that we ought to be asking is who or what is Lord of your life? What is it that preoccupies your mindset? Because I think, I think he said, if you could answer that question, you would to a large degree determine someone's identity and purpose. Now, I don't know if you know this, but two weeks from today, on Sunday, November 13th at 1 p.m. in the afternoon at this altar, we have 86 students who are going to answer that question for themselves. Who are going to answer the question, who is to be Lord and Savior of your life? And I think my son was right. I think it may be life's most important question. But if we confess Jesus as Lord, it's very clear that we are to be a part of a royal priesthood. Now, it sounds just like Exodus 19, verse 6, and that's where we left off last week, that after the Hebrews were delivered through the Red Sea, God made it crystal clear to them these words, you shall be for me a kingdom of priests. And then in the New Testament, in our letter, in Peter's letter, he expands this idea of priesthood to include not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, or all who find new life in God's grace in Christ, and then if you follow Paul to Galatians 3.28, he says, look, in Christ Jesus, there isn't any Greek or Jew, so there went ethnicity. There isn't any male or female, so there goes gender. There isn't any slave nor free, there goes status. All of which are secondary parts of our identity. But our primary identity is in our baptism. I don't know if you know this today, we, if, you, if we have former Presbyterians with us, uh, you know that today is Reformation Sunday. Did you know that? Um, it was on this day in 1517 that a German priest named Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses or complaints to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. Sherry and I were there in 2017 for the 500th anniversary of the Protestant church. His theses were a means of protest against the abuses of the Roman Catholic church. By the way, if you didn't notice, what's the root word of Protestant protest? That's a part of our DNA too, as Christians. But what Martin Luther was so upset with on that day uh, was the fact that the priests of God who'd been ordained by the church were charging indulgences to folks who had lost loved ones, telling them that they could get their deceased loved one out of purgatory and into heaven for a fee. Luther saw no scriptural evidence of purgatory, and by the way, there was a jingle in that day that went like this. This is historical. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And they made bank on it. The proceeds were sent to Pope Leo X for the construction of a new building, a new basilica, 
And Luther claimed, rightly so, that the Pope is already the richest man in the world, so why build a church on the backs of the poor? Indeed, historians say that Pope Leo X spent the church's wealth on carnivals, wars, gambling, and hunting. Turns out the Holy Roman Empire wasn't so holy after all. Another issue for Luther was the fact that the religious hierarchy in the 16th century would not allow the scriptures to be translated from Latin into German. So nobody could read the Bible for themselves. They were totally dependent on the priest's interpretation. Now, I want to say to you clearly, if you hear something ever from the pulpit, and you will, that sounds a little fishy, you go home. Don't Google it. Study it. Research it for yourself and come back and help the pastor. Luther understood that the Bible was not the possession of the clergy. It belongs to the people. Indeed, what timing? The advent of the printing press in Gutenberg served the purpose of placing the scriptures into the hands of the people. And it was Martin Luther who translated the scripture into the common language. Now, I say all that to say this. Luther believed in a concept called the priesthood of all believers. And you know where he got it? He got it from the scripture that Diane read today. That's 1 Peter 2, 9. By the way, if you didn't know, it's also one of the five core values of Brentwood United Methodist Church. We have five core values, and that's one of them. And here's the good news. You don't have to wear a stole to be a priest. You don't have to put on a robe with stripes to be a minister. You don't have to go to seminary to be a priest. You're welcome. I just saved you three years of your life. You don't have to have a bishop lay hands on your head to be a minister. You don't have to be ordained by a bishop because you've already been ordained in your baptism. That's your ordination. And so whether you knew it or not, we are a kingdom of priests. That's our identity. It's just who we are. Now, it's interesting that the text never says you should be, or you ought to be, or you better be. It just says you are. It's not an imperative. It's an indicative. That's our identity. I always think of my favorite psychologist, Carl Jung, who once said, the world will ask you who you are, and if you don't know, they will tell you. And there's a lot of labels for who we are. And I've discovered in my own life that when we're confused about our identity, we're confused about our purpose. But when we know who we are, we know what to do. Identity gives way to purpose. And you can see it in the back half of verse 9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, God's own people, so that, here's the purpose, so that you may proclaim or demonstrate the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In other words, because you are a priest, you are a witness. And let me tell you what that doesn't mean. 
To be a witness does not mean that you are to defend God. I don't think God needs our protection. I think the rest of us needs God's protection. You don't have to defend God. You don't have to coerce or impose or compel or judge. That's not the role of a witness. The role of a witness is to simply share your own experience of the light of what God has done for you and what God is doing even in you now. Now, I wish I could make it more complicated, so many of you want it complex, but this is very simple. This is the purpose of a priest, to bear witness. By the way, the verses immediately following what Diane read from Eugene Peterson's The Message, this is 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, gives us some practical advice about our witness. Listen to this. Friends, this world is not your home, so don't get too cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. No, live an exemplary life in your neighborhood so that your actions will refute their prejudices and then they will be won over to God's grace and they will be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. That's our purpose, a kingdom of priests, to be faithful in prayer, presence, gift, service, witness, to make our lives a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. For this is our spiritual worship. When you know who you are, you know what to do. Let me give you one example of this and I'm finished. A couple of years ago, I heard about a man in Opelika, Alabama, who had been worshiping with us online for some time. He was in his mid to late 80s. His son and daughter-in-law are members of this church. I think uh, his son is a Stephen minister. They were with us at 945. They got him connected in Opelika, Alabama with Brentwood United Methodist Church online for worship during COVID. And he joined us every single Sunday. Sometimes his son told me he actually listens to all three services. And I thought, my Lord, I feel mercy upon him. Uh, but he said, he said, every Sunday night, my dad would call me and we would talk about the music and he loved the music. And I think he took a shine for Patsy Wade, actually. <laughs> I mean, the man's 88 years old, right? And he said, we talk about the music and we talk about the scripture. We talk about the sermon and how to apply it. And, and one Sunday, this older man heard about healing housing. I think Tracy... Levine is in the house with us today, who is our executive director from Healing Housing and a member of this church. And I don't know how he got your number, Tracy, uh, but he got your number and he called and you all talked and he gave a very generous gift. He lives in Alabama. He's never set foot in this church, but he had a heart. He heard about the women that were struggling, coming out of difficult places, and he has a heart for recovery, especially for those who were struggling with domestic abuse and life in general. And so he calls Tracy, and she was kind enough to accept his generous gift, and he promised that there would be more to come. He and I would sometimes talk on the phone, and we became good friends. He had this wonderful Southern dialect 
I love to hear him talk. You know, he talked as God intended the language to be spoken. All of his R's were soft. All of his T's were smooth. And I can hear him now. He say, Dr. Chapel, I'm so glad to hear your voice. And he lived as he was intended to live. He died two weeks ago, yesterday. His son, Randy, made possible our friendship. And I'm indebted. Funny thing, I never actually met the man. I wouldn't know him face to face. But I knew his voice. And I know his son. And because of that, I knew his heart. And I think he knew mine. I've thought about that in my relationship to God. I have never actually seen God. But I know his voice. And I know his son. And I know a fraction of his heart. And he knows mine completely. And that's made all the difference in my life. More than anything, that defines our identity and gives us purpose. And so I have to tell you there sometimes we just can't help it, can we? When you've experienced the goodness of God, you have to share it because it's just who we are. And when you know who you are, you'll know what to do. Let me say it like this. When you find your why, you will find your way. And that's my prayer for you, for me, for us, for the body, as we live out our priesthood to the glory of God. In Jesus' name.